0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. This is a very special mailbag edition. We're going to empty out uh, Father John's mailbag today to the best of our ability, Uh, so we won't be taking your phone calls today, but uh, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, you can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host as he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Glad to hear it. We've got an email here from Gary to start things off. He says, what determines the validity of priestly ordination? Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, what, uh, a valid
2: ordination consists that, one, um, you have a baptized male as the ordinandi. So he must be baptized, he must be male gender, and he must be ordained by a validly consecrated bishop and the bishop must intend to ordain him and as long as the priest to be himself does not have an explicit will not to be ordained uh he would be ordained and the bishop must impose hands upon his head and then uh say the prayer of ordination and once that's done then um the other parts of the, of the rite, the anointing of the hands and the handing of the in the traditio instrumentorum, the handing of the instruments, basically, which is the chalice filled with wine and a patent with a host on it, um, they're not required for validity, but they are required for lyseity. So the bottom line is that, that you have to have a bishop who imposes hands and then says uh, the words of ordination.
1: Uh, Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Linda wants to know, when does life begin? At the moment of conception. And we know this because, first of all,
2: um, even medical science tells us that once the sperm um, fertilizes the egg, there's a unique DNA that is distinct from the mother and from the father. Up until that point... The egg and the sperm have the same DNA as the respective mother or father. But once uh, conception takes place, that DNA is unique and it stays the same throughout the life of that person. And theologically, we say that is when the human soul is created at the moment of conception. And because we have the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, we say that Mary, from the moment of her conception, that means the moment she was conceived in the womb of Saint Anne, her mother, she was free from all original sin. And at the Annunciation, when the angel uh, Gabriel announced to Mary she was going to be the mother of the Savior, and she said yes, at that moment uh, our Lord was conceived in his mother's womb, and so um, his human nature was created at that moment.
1: Uh, Philip would like to know, how can I defend the Blessed Mother to my Protestant in-laws? Can you give me specific (laughs) scripture passages to support the evidence? Well, I would say the
2: most obvious one is from Luke's gospel, the very beginning, uh, at the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel meets her and gives what we call the angelic salutation. He says, Hail, full of grace, uh, the Lord is with you. That phrase, full of grace, is so key. Uh, it's gratia plain in Latin and "kai carito mene in Greek. Uh, what it means is, if you're full, there's room for nothing else. Uh, it doesn't say that Mary. It will be. It makes a statement of fact that she is full of grace, and the Lord is now with her because once she says yes, uh, she conceives of of, of Christ uh, in her womb. Uh, the salve, the hail, uh, that's something that was only reserved for a very special persons. And then when Mary goes again, this is Luke's gospel. Uh, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth because the angel said, your kinswoman is with child. She's now in her sixth month. As soon as Mary enters the room where Elizabeth is is present, and remember now John the Baptist is six months unborn in his mother's womb. Jesus is just a day or two at the most in his mother's womb. Um, The um, Saint Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That phrase, mother of my Lord, is very, very special because only God is called Adonai uh, in, in the Hebrew, which means uh, this is the mother of my Lord. And um, Mary's affirmation from Elizabeth and the fact that uh, John the Baptist leapt in his womb um, means that Mary is very special, and this specialness, her her immaculate conception, her grace, the mother of my Lord, the mother of God that comes from her relationship to Jesus. So uh, it's not that Mary gets any of this on her own, but just like the queen mother in England when she was alive, her relationship to the monarch is what gave her her title and specialness. So the fact that she was first married to the king, and then her daughter became queen. Likewise, Mary's honors that we give her are because of her relationship to Jesus. She is truly his mother, not just because... She said yes, and not just because she conceived them in her womb, uh, she certainly gave birth to them at Christmas, but all the other aspects of motherhood. And again, we see in Revelation, uh, in, in chapter 12, there appeared in the sky a great sign, the woman clothed with the sun, on her head a crown of 12 stars, and the moon, moon, the moon beneath her feet. This woman that's uh, talked about in Revelation 12 is a fulfillment of, in Genesis chapter 3, when um Adam and Eve had sin and God curses the snake the serpent the devil and says I'll put enmity between you and the woman the woman that's re- that's referred to in Genesis 3 is not Eve but Mary who will be the new Eve so Mary's relationship with Jesus and remember this is a true human nature as well as having a true divine nature you deny Christ's div- uh, humanity if in any way you lessen the fact that he has this real uh, relationship with his mother, and although in his divinity he has no parent, uh, his relationship to God the Father is is unique because there are three persons in the Trinity. But his relationship to Mary and his human nature is as real as yours and mine. So, you know, as Fulton J. seen says, you know, uh, you you, you dis the mother, you you mar the son.
1: Uh, Nathan writes in, what does grave matter mean in regards to national natural family planning? Okay, uh, grave matter. Uh, th-
2: this is one of the elements that's necessary for a mortal sin. That you have grave matter, full consent of the will, and sufficient knowledge. Um, natural family planning. Um, the grave matter that's involved in that would be the, the sexual activity. Now, sex in and of itself, all right, is is uh, reserved to the estate of marriage. So, any sex outside of marriage, whether it's be you know it's adulterous or fornicatious. Uh, that's considered grave matter, but between hu- husband and wife, all right, uh, it's it's legitimate, but it must also be done uh, in a respectful uh, and and uh, holy way. That's why uh, John Paul, Saint John Paul the, the Great, talked about the theology of the body. Um, sexuality between husband and wife is sacred, and when it's abused, when either spouse treats their, their other uh, as a, a sex object. And again, humane Vitae from Paul VI makes this clear too. When you separate procreation uh, from unity, love and life, uh, then you can get into sinful behavior. So um, the grave matter that's involved in natural family planning is that it needs to be done for the, the proper reason. You want to space out uh, your family. You, you feel you can only uh, afford to raise so many. and But you're always open to the possibility Okay, that's why, uh, first of all, it's not only natural, but also
1: it conforms to God's will. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, Not taking your phone calls today. Perry wants to know, everyone keeps saying that it is the laity's job to change and transform the church in response to all of the scandals. What specifically should we do?
2: Well, first of all, pray. We must pray for uh, good solid, holy vocations. We have to pray that the bishop sends them to good, solid uh, seminaries. We have to pray that the priests, after they're ordained, behave themselves. We have to pray that the bishops do the right thing and remove priests who don't behave, who misbehave, who um, in any way, shape, or form violate their vow of of chastity and uh, celibacy. And then secondly, uh, when you hear of horrible things. Uh, If someone you know, a family member, a friend or something, says that, yeah, they were uh, abused by the priest, you need to report that uh, to the diocese and uh, to the local authorities. And uh, we must support those who are doing good, and we have to aggressively go after those who violate uh, the norms.
1: A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email to openline at ewtn.com. That's openline at ewtn.com. And put Father Trigilio or Monday or something like that into the subject line, and we will know exactly where to put it. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. It is EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Trigilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: This is a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Tara has a question for you, Father John Tregilio. How can you believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, when the Gospels say Joseph did not have relations with Mary until she gave birth, doesn't until imply <laughs> afterwards she was not a virgin. Uh, no, it does not. <laughs> if this was a court of
2: law, uh, that would not be um, evidence uh, to, to prove your case. Uh, the word until, especially in English, all right, has certainly more than one meaning. And when you go to the Greek and the Latin, it's a little bit more precise. Even the phrase, I know sometimes people use not only until, but the idea of firstborn. Uh, They say, well, you don't call someone first unless there's a second or a third. Well, in Jewish culture, uh, the title firstborn meant that you came first but even if you had no others. It was a status. It was a classification. The firstborn son um, received the inheritance. It didn't go out evenly to all the kids. So, Although he only had one kid, he would still be the firstborn. And when it said Joseph had no relations until they were married, uh, that's a guarantee that there was no relation. Joseph had no relations with Mary up until that point. But also the fact that the Church solemnly teaches that she remained a virgin uh, ante, inter, and postpartum, which means before, during, and after uh, the conception and birth of, of Jesus Christ. And this befits the fact that. Uh, her spouse spiritually was the Holy Spirit. And St. Joseph, while she was legally uh, the spouse of Mary in the eyes of the, of the uh, Jewish religion, in terms of conjugal relations, this was uh, a true marriage, but there was no um, conjugal uh, relationship between Joseph and Mary. And uh, this has solemnly been taught by the Church. So the word until... Uh, it's not enough to say, doesn't that leave a little wiggle room? Uh, no,
1: it does not. All right, I'm only going to ask you this next question because my wife is not in the studio. Uh-oh. Jonathan wants to know, what exactly does submission in marriage mean? <laughs> oh, we always get one of those. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, we look at the word submit. Okay, uh, submission comes from Latin word, submitere, okay? And it doesn't mean that you are uh, inferior, it doesn't mean that the husband is superior to the wife, but submissio means that you're under the same mission. And the fo- the husband is the head of the family, uh, the wife, the mother, okay, she supports, but she is not a servant of the husband in the sense that she's there to be as domestic, okay? Um, in terms of the relationship, it's like Jesus and his bride, the church, all right? The church is, submits to the authority of Christ, but there's unity of will there. So if the wife and the husband want the same thing, and they go about in the same way, there's no conflict. It's only when the husband puts himself before his wife or before the family that that becomes problematic. But as head of the family, if he says, you know, we need to move, or, you know, uh, you know we've got to send Johnny to the to this school... He's got the, the authority, but he has to also use it uh, in a respectful way. And it's not that he has not 100% and the wife has zero. Okay, It's more like he's got 51%. She's, she's got 49 As my mother uh, would often say, your father is the head of the family, but I'm the neck that turns the head.
1: <laughs> so this has nothing to do with closet space.
2: Nothing whatsoever. But as all husbands will tell you, Uh, If you want peace and tranquility in the family, you Mm -hmm. check things out with the wife.
1: We were looking, when we were looking for a house here, when we purchased the house we live in now, anytime we would go into a house that had two closets in the master bedroom, I would say, Oh, look, honey, hers and hers closets. <laughs> Very prudent. <laughs> uh, again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your uh, phone calls. Very special item at EWTN's religious catalog a standing Jerusalem stone crucifix. This distinctive standing crucifix features authentic Bethlehem stone from the Holy Land and a genuine pewter corpus and an antique bronze finish on a sturdy rectangular base. The same stone was used to build the pillars in the Church of the Nativity and the Tomb of Jesus in the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. This stone crucifix makes a special keepsake gift for the commemoration of any sacrament, especially First Communion, Confirmation, and RCIA. This piece is five and one half inches tall, and it's available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use code FREE at checkout. Uh, Timothy writes in People can be good outside of faith. So why should they convert to Catholicism? How does faith change morality or the ability to be good? Alright, that's a very good question. And we know from
2: our study of history and cultures that uh, before the time of Christ and even outside the, the, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, the Greeks and Romans, despite you know their fall and their the not- notorious uh, bad behavior at times, also achieved some greatness and The fact at the very natural level, because we have the natural moral law that applies to every human being, regardless of what religion or lack of that they have, natural moral law applies to everyone and is knowable by everyone. And so human beings universally are called to live a virtuous life. But to get to the next level of a supernatural, a spiritual life, one needs God's grace. Because even though we can be virtuous, we can't be holy without God's grace. Therefore, although you could be a moral person, a virtuous person, to be a holy person, you need grace, and grace comes to us in the fullest sense through the sacraments. So in order to receive the sacraments, one must be a member of the church. And one's a member of the church by being baptized and being formally uh, enrolled in, in the church through confirmation and through holy communion. Therefore, you know, uh, yes, you can be a virtuous, good person, but if you want to be a holy person, if you want to become a saint, then you need the church, and the church will provide the sacraments because she was given those sacraments by Christ, and the church is necessary for salvation because Jesus, uh, you know, gave to her all the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace, and uh, He established it on on the uh, on the rock of Peter, and that's His blessed bride. So, yeah, it's possible to be a good, uh, moral person without religion or faith, but with faith, with membership in the church, you get that extra uh, bonus of, of, of the spiritual life and the life of grace and the sacraments.
1: Uh, Yelena writes in, if we believe God created everything, how can we understand that God could create hell?
2: Well, God created hell after the angels fell. So one-third of the angels went bad. The other two-thirds stayed good. And once they went bad, they had to go some way. They were not worthy to go into heaven. And remember that the, the test the angels uh, went through was before uh, the angels themselves, who, went, who were good, went to heaven. This was not a war in heaven uh, in a technical or ontological sense. But before God would let them into heaven, they had to prove their worthiness. So God created hell for Satan and those uh, fallen angels because they had to go someplace uh, in in terms of uh, they couldn't go to heaven and earth had not yet been created.
1: But I thought everything outside of the created order was outside of time and space.
2: Well that's why hell is not in a spatial temporal location that you can't find it on. whether you're in a a TARDIS from Doctor Who or or the Starship (laughs) Enterprise with Star Trek There's no way you can physically uh, reach or find hell or heaven because it's not a place in time and space. Um, There is no time in in hell. Uh, There is no time in heaven. They they both uh, last for eternity.
1: Uh, Francis wants to know, why do we pray certain mysteries of the rosary on the days that we do?
2: it's just a convention it's you know you're not forbidden it's not bad it's not uh you know improper you know it just helps people because the original rosary that st dominic got and used okay when he was fighting the albigensian heresy the full rosary was 150 okay uh, beads and over time the church uh, in her wisdom decided well let's abbreviate that because for a lot of people that just would be too much to do in one sitting so they broke it up into groups of decades so you had the, the 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 joyful mysteries the sorrowful the glorious and then John Paul the great added the, the luminous ones but the dominican rosary as it first came out had all 150 beads on there and uh you know you didn't have, you didn't have a particular day of the week if you did all of them now because we broke them up just for the sake of you know keeping things a little bit interesting so to speak uh, a little variety People are encouraged, but you're not obligated to do the, ro- the, the certain mysteries either based on the day of the week or, as uh, some people do, they'll pray the sorrowful mysteries all during Lent, uh, the joyful all during Advent, and the glorious at Christmas and Easter. So, But you can do whatever you want in terms of praying uh, the different uh, mysteries uh, as you like. It's a sacramental. It's something the Church created uh, and uh, you're not doing anything bad if you, you know, alter it within those parameters.
1: But there is some some logic to it, uh, you know, beyond the the purely uh, scriptural. I mean, it does make sense to pray the sorrowful mysteries on Friday and the glorious mysteries on Sunday.
2: Oh, it does I mean it? It's it's they weren't just you know capriciously uh, formulated. Uh, you always wanted to start with uh, the joyful, and as you said. Uh, Friday was always typically a day of penance. In fact, you know the code of canon law still says that all Fridays should be penitential to some degree and Sunday is is the day of of resurrection and um, now you have Saturday and Sunday back to back, both glorious. Uh, somebody asked me about that once and I said, well, Saturday's the end of the week uh, <laughs> Sunday is the beginning of the week in terms of of um, from life of faith on your um on your calendar when you look at that the Gregorian calendar, Sunday's the beginning and uh, Saturday's the end. So it's a nice way to bookend it by having the glorious at the end and then in between the the joyful, um, the sorrowful, and the luminous.
1: And uh, quickly before our break here at the bottom of the hour, uh, Carl says, is there ever an acceptable time for divorce in a Catholic church?
2: The only time the church tolerates divorce is if the safety, whether it's physical or emotional, of the wife and kids or the husband and kids, uh, requires that they need a divorce for legal protection, um, but no one can get uh, married unless there is a decree of nullity. So the church uh, uh, permits the civil divorce if it's needed for legal reasons to protect uh, the well-being, safety of, of the one of the spouses and the children.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We're emptying out the mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, you can just send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And you can put Father Trigilio or Monday or something like that into the subject line, and it will get to the appropriate location. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Trigilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Tony writes in, Father John, we had a gay marriage talk in theology class today, and (laughs) our teacher was not ready for a question. The point of marriage is union between man and a woman, To procreate. But infertile couples can be married and not have a baby. So why can't gays get married? They're not procreating either. I know it's not a man and a woman, but if the point of marriage is to make a baby and a no-baby couple can get married, why can't gay people?
2: Okay, well, that's a a logical question. Uh, The problem is that it's more than just procreation. There's unity and procreation love and life, as um, Humani Vitae makes it very clear, and this is the psalm teaching of the Church. So yes, openness to children, and even an infertile couple, I mean, they're they're not doing anything to frustrate that, that if somehow, you know, the doctor misdiagnosed uh, the sterility of, of either one of them. But the idea of unity, the complementariness of male and female, is as important as the openness to children. That's why Only a male can marry a female, and that's why the Church uh, reserves the sacrament of matrimony not just to a heterosexual couple, but also between one man and one woman. Um, The polygamous marriages of of the past uh, are not permitted either. So it's not just the fact of them not being able to have children, but also the fact that that physical complementariness, and again, this uh, is accentuated and and really beautifully uh, explained in the theology of the body that the way God designed the human body uh, is such that husband and wife complement each other, and when you've got the same gender whether it's two homosexual men or two homosexual women, uh, you don't have complementariness. What you have then is more mutual uh, stimulation uh, of, of each one but you don't have the conjugal uh, act of love between husband and wife.
1: Um, MJ writes in I heard a piece about increasing our devotion to Mother Mary. Well, if I do that, am I shortchanging the Lord Jesus? I never knew she was such a big part of the kingdom. <laughs> well, I'll put it this way
2: when my mother used to visit me, and I was a pastor for 16 years in, in Marysville and Duncan and Pennsylvania, anytime my mother visited, People went out of their way to be nice to my mom. They would talk to her, give her flowers, you know, just treat her with all kinds of adulation. I did not take that as an insult. I was honored by the honor they gave to my mother. And conversely, if they showed any rudeness or impoliteness or ignored her, I took that as an offense. I think Jesus is the same way. He's true God and true man. He's got a real human nature. So he's not bummed out if you honor his mother. Because uh, he himself, all right, uh, he honors his his mother. Uh, That's part of one of the commandments, honor thy father and mother. So his sacred humanity is as real as his divine, uh, divine personhood. So anything that we give to Mary, again, because of a relationship to Jesus, doesn't take away. He's not saying, hey, wait a minute, what about me? Our Lord doesn't see it that way any more than you or I would get upset if somebody you know, paid attention to our mom.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today. Uh, Gary wants to know if you can live a holy life without a spiritual director.
2: Yes, you can. It's just that a spiritual director is helpful. Problem is that there, you know, sadly, there's not a lot of priests who feel comfortable um, being a spiritual director. And, you know, uh, we tell the seminarians, offer yourself, okay? But you can also go to a deacon, Spiritual direction. The advantage of having a priest, obviously, is that you could also go to confession to him. You're not obligated, you could go to a separate priest for confession. But a spiritual director is sort of like a spiritual coach who's there to help you to look at and to also talk about those things you don't have time to talk about in the confessional. You know, when you've got 45 people waiting in line on Saturday afternoon about well, your prayer life and the challenges you had during the week, you don't have that luxury. Alright, it's more like a triage. You're at the ER. Uh, they're not there to ask you how's your blood pressure doing or how unless you're having an event. You go to the regular doctor for a long appointment to go through all the stuff that's going on in your physiological life. You go to, to the ER when you need emergency. And confession is sort of that way. You go to get the mortal sins removed, also the grace of the sacrament. But to get some in-depth talking and counseling, that's what spiritual direction is about.
1: And to enter into a relationship with the spiritual director, the the directee has some responsibilities too, don't they? Yes, they need to be
2: completely honest and frank, because remember, this is what we call internal form. So what you tell a priest in spiritual direction is as confidential as what you tell them in the sacrament of confession. So I here at the seminary, anything my spiritual directees tell me, I cannot repeat, I can't act upon any more than I, I could do with, with, with a confession. But you need to b- be regular also in going to your spiritual director. So we advise, you know, at least monthly um, sessions with your spiritual director to be open and frank, but also to be docile. I mean, you're wasting everyone's time if you listen, but don't do anything about it.
1: Um, Jenny writes in Can you request the anointing of the sick for someone who isn't a practicing Catholic?
2: if someone's in danger of death um, when i was a hospital chaplain if there's any doubt of whether or not they were catholic i, I you know you, you always uh gave them the benefit of the doubt um, if someone was dying um you re, in order to receive the sacraments you have to be baptized and you need to be in full communion with the church so i can give a blessing and pray for someone who's not Catholic, but if they want the sacrament of knowing of the sick, then, you know, they need to be brought into full communion with the church, and sometimes that's the best opportunity to do it. They're more disposed, and, you know, you say, well, we don't know, you don't want to scare them and say, you know, this might be your, <laughs> your last chance here on earth, but it may be. I mean, when you're in the hospital for something minor, you could throw a blood clot and still end up dead. So, uh, when someone's in the hospital, and and you know, and then we don't want people just to become Catholic, and then when they get better, they go back to their their other their old way of life. But uh, if there's any uncertainty or doubt, the benefit can go to the to the person being anointed. But if they're conscious, and you know that like you know, they're practicing Methodist or Presbyterian or something, the priest isn't able to anoint them, but he certainly could pray for healing. and and give them some consolation.
1: We are making our way through the old mailbag today on Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls. Aaron writes in, if baptism is valid in some other Christian denominations, can their communion also be valid? No. (laughs) Other than the Eastern Orthodox,
2: because they have valid orders, they have apostolic succession. Uh, Pope Leo XIII uh, made it clear that the Church of England, the Anglican Episcopalian Church does not have valid orders um, but yes, baptism as long as it's water, whether it's by immersion, okay where you dunk the person, or uh, infusion, where you're pouring the water over their head um, valid baptism, invoking the Holy Trinity I baptize you in the name of the Father <speaking in> the Holy Spirit or valid and he must use wheat bread and grape wine and do the exact words of consecration. But uh, the problem is that the other ministers outside the Eastern Orthodox don't have valid orders. So even if they say the right words, even if they have the right intention, they don't have the power, the authority uh, to consecrate bread and wine into the body blood Christ. So yes, that's why when someone becomes Catholic who is valley baptized we say they're coming into full communion because by baptism there's a partial union and then when they receive confirmation Holy Communion now they're in they're in full communion with the church
1: Dave wants to know why in Christianity is the Holy Spirit considered male so that the Trinity is male 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 <laughs>
2: Well, it's only considered male because the Holy Spirit is the uh, spouse of the Virgin Mary. And so uh, she's female, obviously. I mean, she's the one who gave birth to Jesus. Uh, There's no doubt of her uh, feminine gender. Uh, So the Holy Spirit is depicted either as a dove, okay? I've never seen the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, depicted as a man, except in a few old, old icons where you've got three men, and that was the earliest depiction of the Trinity. Now, later on, in sacred art, they depicted God the Father as an old man, Jesus as you know he's typically uh, portrayed in his uh, early 30s there, and then the Holy Spirit a- a- as a dove. But you know, outside of Jesus in his sacred humanity, the fa- God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have no gender. It's just for the sake of us having to some wrap our minds around this awesome mystery. That we do depict. So the fact that all three are male depicted uh, it doesn't violate any sense of e- equality because again, the church is described as feminine, the the, the bride of Christ.
1: Uh, Deborah writes in, she says, Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it in the Gospels. But Saint Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus came to abolish the law. Is this a contradiction?
2: No, because the law that Jesus uh, abolished was the old Mosaic law, all those almost uh, over 600 some dietary and other m- minutia of laws of what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath, and you know all these different interpretations, uh, the, you know from uh, that's found in the Jewish, not just in the, the, the um, commentaries, the Midrash and um, the Talmud and that, but what he came to fulfill was the law of of the Old Testament, particularly like the Ten Commandments, and the promise that was made in Genesis. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. That's why the Ten Commandments are still in force. He did not abolish them. In fact, he even warned those who even violate uh, one letter of the law in terms of the law of the covenant. All the man-made laws that came afterwards, you know, that they couldn't eat pork, and, and certain other things, shellfish. Those are the things that, that he did uh, uh, eliminate.
1: A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today. Be sure to join us for the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, M- Mercy rather, Monday through Friday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Phil says, I strongly believe that humanity has been a catalyst for climate change. Most spiritual people get frustrated with me about this. Is there room in Catholicism to believe this? To believe in climate change? Uh, Um, Or man's... (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Or man's (laughs) responsibility for climate change.
2: I mean, the the thing is that uh, religion respects science. Science... All right, has many competing theories, and the and the whole uh, way of the scientific method uh, of the empirical truths is you know by hypothesis testing, and then uh, conclusions which can then be refined. Um, it's not solemnly revealed like in in theology with with the revealed truths that God has given us or philosophical truths that are known by reason alone. So, if science would come to the point of saying yes absolutely positively would unequivocally say that mankind has been creating a situation where uh, global warming or climate change has been uh, affected that's what science says okay just like if they tell us that the earth revolves around the sun science tells us that however science also told us one time the earth was flat <laughs> science also told us uh Other things, like, you know, that man could never fly. So science is always improving itself, refining itself, and because of that, until it's considered a scientific fact, a lot of things are still scientific theory. I mean, even uh, evolution is still referred to in many circles as the theory of evolution. But it doesn't oppose Catholic religion if it's understood in the proper context. And likewise, with global warming, I mean... Um, I think there's a lot of holes in some of the the things people say today, that, you know, we have to um, abandon uh, fossil fuels, uh, just like, you know, some people are talking about Remember back in the 60s, they said there was a population explosion, that if we didn't give everybody contraception, there'd be too many people on Earth. Well, guess what? In Europe, they're not having enough people. The birth rate in in Italy is at an all-time low. uh, So much for the population explosion. So, uh, with, you can personally advocate that you believe uh, there's climate change or global warming or w- whatever else <laughs> is out there, um, and your response though has to be always, uh, you know, in context that faith does not contradict reason or vice
1: versa. Albert says in Revelation, what does it mean at the end when it gives a curse to people who add or subtract? That was
2: meant to. Anyone who, like the Gnostics did, they added all these things to the gospel. They had the, they added their own gospels, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel, all right, of Thomas. Uh, these were things that were not just uh, spurious where they came from, but it was well known that these were conceived and concocted by people in the third or fourth century with an agenda. Now, if you could, uh, if you could prove with moral and, and metaphysical certitude that. Thomas did write a document, or even the Virgin Mary, uh, if you found a document. The fact of it being an authentic author still doesn't mean it becomes part of sacred scripture because sacred scripture has been decided. St. John was the last uh, book, uh, last one to write, and therefore no other books can get inserted into uh, the, the Bible. So the fact is that you've got some things which, uh, like the Pro Evangelium of James, that mentions, you know, Anne and Joel as the parents of Mary. We have no question, of, I mean, a lot, most scholars think that that, that, it, that uh, James more than likely did write it, but that doesn't make it uh, a gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, canonical gospels, end the story.
1: Jonathan wants to know, he says, well, he says, my archdiocese has an LGBTQ Catholic outreach. Am I supposed to accept this, and if so, How? Well, outreach uh,
2: is a problematic word. I mean, um, I know most dioceses uh, have um, a priest uh, established as the chaplain for courage. And courage is the proper response to the LGBTQ question mark, whatever it is, uh, because uh, it doesn't adopt all the political um, agendas and misappropriation of terms and uh, the immoral Uh, uh, ideas that are promoted, say, uh, by dignity and other groups like that. So outside of courage, I don't know. I mean, yes, the church needs to provide um, care spiritually and morally without condoning bad behavior. So just like AA, I mean, a lot of parishes allow AA meetings. They're not going to allow people to get drunk, though, on church property Uh, They want people to remain sober. So you're going to encourage people to live a life of sobriety. And likewise, if someone is gay and lesbian, the the goal is that they're going to live a chaste life
1: uh, of celibacy. Uh, Robert says, what does it mean that the Mass is a sacrifice, and how does someone participate in this sacrifice?
2: Well, it's a sacrifice because it's the unbloody reenactment of Calvary. So the priest has a separate consecration, of the, of the bread and the wine. So when you separate body from blood, a separate consecration, when you separate body from blood, you have death. So the separate consecrations of, of the bread and wine uh, establish the, the death of Jesus, and then remember Jesus did not stay dead, he rose on the third day. So we don't receive dead flesh and dead blood uh, at communion, we receive the risen Christ. We participate in that at the offertory, the priest says, pray Brethren, that my sacrifice and yours. Well, what's the yours? The priest's sacrifice is the bread and wine. The people's sacrifice is that we're placing all ourselves on the altar with the bread and wine. So we're saying, yes, I offer my will to God and I will replace it with his will. I sacrifice my wants, my desires, my life uh, for God. So we are placing ourselves on that altar along with The bread and wine.
1: Special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Andrew writes in Is it true that the original church taught universal salvation and the doctrine of hell was invented in the early Middle Ages? No.
2: (laughs) Jesus makes it quite clear in the Gospels, all right, where the worm dies not, there's grinding of teeth, okay. Um, The early church certainly believed in the reality of hell. And uh, warned against um, people who were just too comfortable. And universalism was never, never uh, a part of Catholic faith, or even uh, Christianity in general. It's a later phenomenon where people think, "Well, everyone's going, so you know, what, what's the what's the worry?" Jesus warns us, okay, and more than one occasion that hell is a reality and it's a place to be avoided. At all costs. So, like in that story of um, you know um, Lazarus and, and the uh, and the rich man, the rich man ends up in hell, uh, not because he got his money immorally, but he was completely uh, guilty of the sin of omission. He did not do anything to help poor Lazarus where he could have.
1: Uh, Duncan writes in. My Protestant friend says we should not call any man father. She doesn't even call her own father father. How can I explain this concept to her?
2: <laughs> well, that's kind of, <laughs> kind of strange because, first of all, you can't have Father's Day. Secondly, you can't call George Washington the father of our country. Certainly, you wouldn't be able to call your dad father. And anytime you fill out a form where it would say father, you wouldn't be able to put anything in the box, okay? It's the context, because even St. Paul, all right, refers to his spiritual children. He's like a spiritual father. Okay, to the Corinthians and, and to the Ephesians. It's the context that no one can replace or uh, put ahead of God the Father. But priests are called Father in the same way that you call your dad father. Uh, it, it's analogous. It stems from the example of God the Father. We certainly don't replace him, okay. But this idea of fatherhood, that we just you know recently had Father's day, a father, uh, helps bring life uh, with the assistance of the mother, obviously, but also he protects, he teaches, uh, he guides, and when necessary, he disciplines. Uh, this is what the parish priest, the pastor, is to do. So when someone calls me father, I don't find it uh, offensive. I don't think it's uh, you know uh, violating uh, any gospel mandate, because Jesus also says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I don't see too many Christians running around wearing patches because they've been plucking their eyeballs out. Yet we all know people look at things they're not supposed to look at. So it's the, Father Levis said it so well, the text taken out of context is a pretext. So when you take, call no one father, it says no one, no one. But also says call no one teacher. Well, you know, uh, what do you do then? You don't have, you know, PTA anymore.
1: (laughs) Uh, Maria says, is the story of the witch of Endor a foreshadowing of the teaching that we should not attempt to contact spirits Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um,
2: the Witch of Endor <laughs> ends up. In fact, I read somewhere when someone said that uh, her name, uh, the Witch of Endor, was uh, probably the impetus where um, on the Endora TV show on Bewitched. Bewitched. Yes, yeah. Endor from Bewitched. She summoned the dead at the request of, of um, King Saul and summoned up Samuel, all right, the prophet. She was struck dead, all right. She combusted into flames. Uh, Because necromancy, communicating with the dead, Uh, so Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, looking in crystal balls, seances, are forbidden by the first commandment. Now, we can um, pray with the dead and for the dead, Uh, that's uh, allowed, that's the community of saints, but to conjure, to summon them, uh, that's um, necromancy, that's uh, the occult, and that is forbidden.
1: Uh, Stan would like to know, why did Jesus never marry? He never married because
2: he has a bride, the church. (laughs) He made that, uh, I mean, St. Paul says, Christ loves the church as a groom loves the bride. So our Lord never married because uh, there was no need for him to get married. He's the savior of the world. And the marriage of husband and wife mirrors the love of Christ and his bride, the church. So if he had a bride, it, would be, um, it wouldn't be it would be polygamous, but it would just be uh, unnecessary. Because there is no complementary necessary for Jesus. He has the fullness, whereas here on earth, human beings, uh, men and women, are not complete. And uh, that's why a man leaves his mother and father and marries his wife, and the two become one flesh. Jesus would not have become uh, one flesh because he already was. There was no... Um, uh, miss, nothing missing in, in Christ
1: and and finally today quickly Father John there are some that would uh, uh, espouse the notion that we're only responsible for what we know and to evangelize people is making them responsible for something <laughs> that they otherwise wouldn't be responsible for
2: yeah well I mean you know they say ignorance is bliss but you know um, why not share I mean we have an obligation to share what we know now if somebody doesn't accept it or they they reject it that's their choice, their decision. But I have an obligation, just as we have an obligation to teach people. I mean, you might say to someone, well, why bother teaching kids who may never, you know, go to college? Or, you know, maybe they don't, good at, don't do well at mathematics, so why bother? It would be a sin. It would be a negligence not to share what we know, because the more you know, the freer you become.
1: Well, this was a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you'd like to be part of a future Open Line uh, mailbag show, just send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: In the name omnipotence, Deus, Pater, ephilius, and Spiritus Sanctus.
1: Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.